It's Emil Elric again. It's a man again. It's a man again. It's a he may be a philological filibuster, but despite his passion for prevarication, this terminological inexactitude in Arian still remains. Oh, gee, I'm cheesed off. You asked it around, you touch it around my face. It's gone. What are you doing? Come on. That is not paid for by them. That is paid for by the people of Detroit. You are qualified, young man. I'm not qualified for this job. Let me tell you something. You want to go right now? Okay? You want to go right now? Hey, kids. It's your old pal, ML Elric, coming to you live on Give Green Day. No, that's not a reference to a proto-punk band from California. This is the day that you're encouraged to make a donation to Michigan State University scholarship funds. If you go to Facebook page Detroit Spartans, you can see a little video of me making a pitch to help the kids in East Lansing or help send some kids to East Lansing. Please uh, see what you can do to help create some more Spartans. And where would I be without my Wolverine pal, Mr. Mark Fell? I'm going to be never promoted. Give Blue Day. Um, it's it. Did, did you really need? Is that rhetorical? No, no. We are <laughs> Which happy. I believe is the same day. I think it's going on now. Oh as well. yeah, yeah. No, I'm so, not positive. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. Yeah. So uh, if you'd like to donate uh, on Give Blue Day, we're raising money so that players can get their uh, their gun training classes. They can finish, you know, their certification process. We are helping to raise money so they can get those permits and uh, and drive really fast. So, yes, we are happy to help with that. So thank you, Mark. Thank you. Class for, houses. Okay. Thank you for reminding me that there's a lot of great causes Just out there. Rename Spartan Stadium to Glass House. We call it the tunnel. Exactly. Are you ready to enter the tunnel? I don't think so. Since we are assaulted, sure. We almost clotheslined poor Devin Bush to death, but he seemed to have recovered all right. So, so Really? We, that's where you want to start? I, I was just trying to raise some money for kids, and then you you tried to get I'm me. I'm just reminding people that it's not just one universe. I'm I'm sure there's a, a green for Wayne State too, and Eastern Michigan, yeah. my favorite college in Washtenaw County, green and white. How can you go wrong? Chris Creighton so doing a great job. Amani Bates bringing that basketball program back, and uh, the basketball program was not that good this year. <laughs> just saying, yeah. he was great. I'm reaching, man. I'm I know, reaching. I know. Oh, and, right. and actually, Let's... he was reaching, too. What is it about athletes in Washtenaw County packing like that? And this Jay Morant thing, what the... Ja Morant, yeah. yeah. Ja, what, Ja, Jay, whatever. I call him Jay. Yeah, that, you know, it's funny you bring it up. I was just reading today that Ja Morant is entering some kind of treatment center. And I'm like, for what? For the gun? For the assault? For the titty bar? I don't know. It sounds like... He, the Great treat- player, though. I love watching him play basketball. Yeah, I think a kick in the ass is the only treatment he really needs. But that's fine. Or maybe they can watch, he can watch some practical Burris videos. How not to pack when you're at the club. It's funny that Plaxico actually has made comment on that and said he wants to talk to John Morant to explain, yeah, don't do that because of what happened to him shooting himself in the leg. Of course, Plaxico, one of the great Wolverine wide receivers... No, I know he's a smart. Yeah, okay, played, I'm giving you that one. Glass House. I'm giving you that one. Okay. Glass House Stadium. Yeah. Well, at least we had Charles Rogers, a uh, model citizen. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Ah, shit. Okay. Oh, rest in peace. 
Okay, never or, mind. Or not. We're going to move What's on. What's going on? We are hoping to be joined later on today by Sean Windsor, who is uh, who is taking a bit of a personal day, but wants to join us. So, uh, so we have uh, we have his chair waiting for him. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a living tribute to Sean, and and we expect to get as much out of the first half hour of the show from that chair as we normally do. <laughs> When it's occupied, in fact, we may be talking a little uh, bit about that during the feedback section at the end of oh, our show. Fantastic feedback today. That's oh, a tease. it's yeah. great stuff. Great stuff. And uh, and if you are watching us, if you're not watching us, you should be. Check us out on YouTube. Please subscribe to our Soul of Detroit channel. If you subscribe and hit the bell, you'll get an alert when we go live, which is always a bit of a mystery because our guests come and go. And today we have a fantastic guest. We've been teasing him for weeks. We finally had Elliot Hall, counselor to mayors, ambassadors, CEOs, and the man who protected the young women. Some said they were prostitutes. We're not here to judge who were eyewitnesses to a massacre at the Algiers motel in 1967. That was one of the more infamous incidents during the 1967 riot, civil disturbance, insurrection, call it what you will, Elliot joined us this morning for a fantastic interview, sharing some insights on on Coleman Young, on Kwame Kilpatrick, and everyone in between. So we are grateful to have Elliot with us. And I'll be talking a little bit about my column, giving some free advice to the other white Mike in Detroit politics, Mayor Duggan, and his state of the city, and a big omission he made, big Big omission that should probably have all of us very, very worried. But this is all brought to you by Luke Nowacki and Pinnacle Wealth Strategies, who will help you prepare for a secure financial future, which is really important now, especially when you see in the banks and you're saying, yeah, that's a little scary. And David Hall of Hall Financial, who will help you get some money out of your house, help you get a house, help you get financing. They do it super fast, and they have more five-star reviews than than we do by a damn sight. So that tells you the quality that you get from Hall Financial. Um, Al Lengel is joining us on Facebook. He says, you guys have a great show, and he should know. He is the impresario of Deadline Detroit, and they do a weekly podcast. Um, Deadline Detroit, check it out. Uh, it's a great, great show. Uh, Kaju Cafe, I want to tell you a little bit about where you can find me on Friday. That's St. Patrick's Day. I will be at the Kaju, uh, officially working from 3 to 4.30, kind of taking our show on the road, but the Cadu will open early on Friday at 11 a.m. They're going to be having bangers and mash, Guinness Irish stew, corned beef and cabbage, Guinness on tap, music all day, except for 3 to 4.30 when I'm on stage, although <laughs> some people find... Yeah, please don't sing. They find my voice mellifluous. I think that's how you say it. And uh, to find out more about what's going on at the Cadu, go to caducafe.com. Please join me on St. Patrick's Day, but anytime is a great time to hit the Kaju Cafe. Uh, Mark, are you going to watch your Spartans play there? Uh, noon, right? Isn't it noon on Friday? Yeah, they're at yeah. noon. No, I'll be teaching at Michigan State, so we may oh, have no. it on in the background. So I'm going to wrap up my class and then beat feet <laughs> for the east side. But I'm, I'm hoping they get out of that first round against USC. That's uh, yeah, No problem. No problem. Well, it depends on which Spartan team shows up. And, and what's with the Sean Windsor curse, by the way? I think I read that <laughs> Michigan State... And U of M were shaping up. They both looked great. They could make a long tourney run. That was ringing in my ears watching the Big Ten tournament. I'm like, whoa, Sean was way off on this one. Oh, and... and uh, That's what's great uh, about sports, right? You can make, make this bodacious hot take, and it just, boom, blows up in your face. Months ago, he wrote, you know, uh, 
Tom Izzo's really learning. He can trust A.J. Hogart. It's a very <laughs> special relationship. And I sent him a text and said, you know what? I believe it too. Very next game, he misses two crucial free throws, and they lose to Purdue at home in a game they could have stolen. Like, the Windsor curse is real. <laughs> it's alive and well, yeah. It is. That's why I'm glad that he is so negative towards me in this show, because it tells me <laughs> that wonderful, great things are ahead. But you should be worried about your calves, because you know he's a, he's a big fan oh, of yeah, that particular might, yeah, piece of your anatomy. You, you may so be weird. facing some sort of clotting or some other catastrophe, so I... I hope you'll wear some of those those socks that they give you. Compression right? socks, yeah, so yeah get sure. Some, get I'll, some of those. I'll get the Sean Windsor brand compression socks. Yes, please take take care of yourself, Mark. We're nowhere we're nowhere without you or with with Joe, who is about to tee up an interview that we recorded just an hour or so ago with Elliot Hall, talking about his amazing career. Very pleased to have a, a special guest with us, a gentleman we've been waiting to talk to for a while. He's busy because he's been in the middle of everything big that's been happening for the last 50 years or more here in Detroit. And that's Elliot Hall, who is not only an outstanding attorney, but he has been an advisor to some of the biggest names in Detroit history, from Coleman Young to Kwame Kilpatrick to, uh, I don't know, who, who are you Who are you representing these days, Elliot? Well, listen, things are quieting down now a bit after 57 years of practicing. Matter of fact, I plan to shut it all down by June 1st of this year. Uh, my wife thinks I ought to come home and stay for a bit, you know. <laughs> but I started practicing right after, in 1966 uh, here in Detroit and um, joined Allen early in 67, four months before the, the famous 1967 riots. Well, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you because we were looking back at the uh, the infamous Algiers Motel. I'm going to call it an incident, but I think massacre is probably more accurate for folks who aren't familiar with this piece of Detroit history. It's one of the bleakest chapters in our history. This was where some some young men were partying at one of the few black-owned hotels in Detroit. Uh, the Dramatics, you may have heard their music, were coming there after a show at the Fox. It was canceled because of the uh, insurrection in the streets. And uh, Detroit police raided the motel, started hassling the young men who were there and a couple of young women, a couple of young uh, white women who I, I've heard described as prostitutes in the, uh, in the movie version of this, Detroit, which came out a few years ago. I think their, uh, their presence there was a little more ambiguous but Elliot Hall was one of the folks who tried to help get to the bottom of the matter, help get the truth of the matter, because after three people were found dead, after many, many tries, uh, the police were, were brought to court. And uh, in the end, I think we're not convicted of, of any crimes. Have I got that right, Elliot? That's right. Uh, the, the case was uh, the, well, there was a change of venue and the police officers involved um, the case was moved out of Detroit to a city in Upper Michigan. I've forgotten the name of the city, but it was way out of Detroit. Mason, Michigan, I believe. Yeah, Mason, you're right. Mason, Michigan. And uh, the jury up there uh, found the officer not guilty. Probably not surprising with an all-white rural jury in 1967. And, and I believe one of the other trials was held in Flint, and I think that was also an all-white jury, and that may have been a federal case, but uh, as I recall, yeah. it ended in, in acquittals as well. Yeah, yep, 
and those were not good times in, in a very charged racial atmosphere. So there are books written about this, and, and I think one of the prouder moments in the Detroit Free Press's history is they went and talked to witnesses at the motel, and they told a very different story than what police had been saying. In fact, at the time, police weren't even reporting that there were dead bodies in the motel. It was uh, a terrible, shocking incident. And if you watch the movie, which is an outstanding movie, I watched, the, you know, and this is a movie, this is a Hollywood production. And after watching the movie, I was, I mean, I was taken aback by the dramatic representation of it. It was so stark, so bleak, and it gave you a real sense that, you know, people talk about Detroit in the good old days and this, and, well, let's, let's get something straight. It's probably never been a bad time to be a white person in Detroit, but for a lot of people, the good old days in Detroit were not that great. And mm-hmm. and if you look like Elliot and not like me, the good old days were not very good at all. Well, let me uh, explain it this way, Emil. Yes, when I was in high school, I graduated from Chadsey High School in Detroit in 1956. At uh, a time when the, the city was really racially segregated, there were black neighborhoods and there were white neighborhoods. But um, many of the black neighborhoods were self-contained. And I have to admit, in my black neighborhood on the west side of Detroit, uh, we sort of made our own, made our own way. And as a result, we had a very happy childhood. But we knew the restrictions of where we could go as black folks. We knew there are certain neighborhoods we couldn't even travel through. We knew that there were certain restaurants uh, that we couldn't attend. And, and, you know, so we knew the restrictions. So we kind of had an enjoyed life within the restrictions. Um, but we knew that the, that the barriers were there and there were elements within the uh, community like NAACP and the Urban League who tried to shut those barriers down. And, of course, eventually they were shut down, uh, slowly going into the 1960s. But despite the discrimination, you have to understand there's one thing. We tried to make life enjoyable and uh, go to school, get educated, and try to make an impact in society. When did did you, I mean, you must have experienced racism directly. Like, when did it hit you at that age? Because I had read that you were delivering papers for the Detroit News and you were going to work your way up there. Until they just said, "We don't, we don't hire, you know, colored people." Colored I think people. was yeah. Let right. me tell you. Well, let me tell you, Mark. This is very, very interesting because I became a lawyer because the Detroit News turned me down. I was I started my paper up when I was thirteen, and then I became. They made me station captain at the age of sixteen, which meant I had ten other. Uh, news carriers that worked in the neighborhood. I distributed papers to them every day, and on Saturday morning was collection day. I would collect their weekly money and then turn it into my district manager who came Saturday afternoon to collect all the money. But while working as a paper boy and station captain, in 1954 March, I won a trip to New York City because of new customers that I were able to uh, obtain. In December, of 1954, I won a trip to Bermuda and won another trip to Bermuda in December of 1955 for getting new 
So I was a fairly decent yeah. paper boy, and I thought I deserved getting a job at the Detroit News right out of high school, starting off as a jumper on the truck, which meant that's when they had newsstands throughout mm -hmm. the city. And a jumper on the side of the truck would put the papers from the truck bed over into the newsstand. And we also, at the, at the end of the week, would, of course, uh, collect the money, the nickel. At that time, the paper was five cents. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So we would collect the money from the box. But my station manager, a month before graduation from high school, told me that, Elliot, I know we promised you this job, but the union will not let us hire you because you're a colored. And that shocked the hell out of me because, you know, I've been <laughs> planning to work for the news. So the only reason I ended up going to college is because my best friend in high school at that time was going to Michigan. He was a college prep guy, and I was from Chadsey High School, and I was in a uh, trade program. Uh, but I always thought I'd work for the news. So I, mm -hmm. I tried college uh, after, after being turned down, and I started Eastern Michigan, left Eastern Michigan, came down to Wayne, and that's where I spent, I spent six years on the Wayne State campus, finishing undergrad in law school. So I ended up becoming a lawyer because I was turned down because I was colored back wow. in 1956. <laughs> so life turned out pretty good anyway. Yeah, I, I would <laughs> say that, that you, took, uh, you took that setback and you turned it into a victory, which, which speaks a lot to the man that you are. And this Algiers Motel incident, uh, as I understand it, one of your jobs was to protect the witnesses. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this case? Yes, it was very interesting, ML. I was in the office. I just started practicing. I was in the office with a well-known lawyer in Detroit at the time, Samuel Allen Early, who represented the Jackalones mm -hmm. and a few other uh, uh, well-known uh, defendants. <laughs> Allen Early was the best mentor that I could have. He's a black man who graduated from the Yale Law School in 1942 at the age of 20. He could not take the New York bar for six months because you had to be 21 to take the New York bar. While at Yale, he was on the Yale Law Journal. Brilliant guy, couldn't find a job in a law office. They finally hired him in the New York prosecutor's office. He came to Detroit around 1952, worked in as a uh, assistant chief, assistant prosecutor. He wasn't chief. He was just an assistant prosecutor in, in that office. And then I was fortunate to get with him in 1967. Well, Alan had a client by the name of Jimmy Gonzalez. Jimmy Gonzalez, ML, hung out at the Greyhound bus station in downtown Detroit back in a time when the bus station was near the city county building. Uh, Jimmy Gonzalez hung out at that bus station because wayward girls <laughs> who had run away from home would always come through that Greyhound bus station. So these two white girls that ended up at the Algiers Motel was courted by Jimmy. Jimmy was going to turn them into prostitutes. Uh, and he was, a, he was a client of Alan Early's. So these girls ended up at the Algiers Motel and was witness to the treatment by the police officers and the killings by the police officers. But of course, police officers, they castigated the girls for being, of course, in, the, in, in this motel with all these black guys. 
And uh, after the shootings in him was all over with, they found their way back to Jimmy Gonzalez, and Jimmy Gonzalez brought both of the girls by Alan Early's office the Saturday after the riot started. And they had told their story to Jimmy, and Jimmy then brought him to Alan. Alan then called John Conyers, and then we got the Justice Department involved. So I was kind of babysitting the girls on Alan's boat. He had a boat in the harbor right next to the Jeffersonian Hotel, you know, down on the east side of Detroit. So I was babysitting these girls until the Justice Department uh, was able to get to them and question them. So that's how, that was my, my, my little involvement with that. And, uh, and about six or seven months after that happened, ML, uh, John Hershey, the famous author, came by, came to Detroit and interviewed a number of people. And he wrote this famous book, The Algiers Motel Incident. And he questioned me about my role in, 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 in that incident. And what, what were these women like? Were they, were they fearful for their life? Were they outraged by what they witnessed? Yeah, they were, they were thankful, of course, that they were, of course, white and not armed. But they were outraged by the treatment of uh, these black guys they were hanging around with. And that was what turned the police on. I mean, it was like these two white girls at the Algiers Motel with these six black men. It was like throwing gasoline on a fire. It was just incendiary for these white Detroit police officers to see this situation. And that's why... Uh, the black guys got caught so much hell. But, of course, after the incident was over, they didn't harm the white girls at all. They just harassed them verbally. And as a result, that's how this whole thing was uncovered by these two girls. Elliot, where were you? Where were you? Um, cause, cause you came into after the fact, right? Where were yeah, you while, yeah. while the, uh, the rising and the rebellion, the riots were going on? Oh my goodness. I was practicing. I was in the office with Alan early in the first national building, 21st floor. And when that the riot started, I was practicing criminal law in the old recorder's court. Hmm. And don't forget, they had over 8,000 people arrested that week. And uh, that was a very hectic week. I had a pass. The court was open 24 hours. All the judges were arraigning, all the defendants coming in, and, and there was a $10,000 surety bond placed on every defendant that was arrested and arraigned. <laughs> And they ran out of space to put the uh, the defendants. They had them housed out in Belle Isle in the bus in, in in the beach house. They also had them on buses because they ran out of jail space. And uh, Goldfarb, the bonding guy, uh, uh, on Bobian, right across Kitty Con uh, Kitty Corner, across the street from thirteen hundred Bobian. I I've teased many a time with the Goldfarbs that they made more money that week from bond than they could spend for the rest of their life. You know? <laughs> because you had to put up, you couldn't just put up 10%. Yeah, you had to whole. put up the full 10000 or your deed to your house at that time. And then after the riots were over, uh, Judge Demacio, uh, judge over in the recorder's court, they instituted the, uh, the practice of putting up 10% of uh, cash for a for a bond rather than a surety bond, but yeah, I was practicing that week, and uh, and I had a twenty four hour pass. I could get through all the police lines uh, without any problem. I'll never forget one incident. I lived out in Northwest Detroit at the time, uh, and I had just visited a client at the Verner Precinct. I remember 
jumping on the expressway in downtown Detroit and driving to Six Mile Road on the expressway. Gentlemen, I did not pass one car coming or going on the expressway for 10 miles. They had The city was completely shut down. And I got a little fearful not knowing. So I was zigzagging all the way home on the expressway because I didn't want to get pot shot because the night before, uh, uh, someone was shot at the Harlan Motel by a sniper while the guy was standing in the window of the hotel. He was killed when the Harlan Motel was in the area of, of, uh, of the boulevard and, uh, and uh, the, the Lodge Freeway. So, yeah, I was working as a lawyer during that week, and that's when I, uh, Alan's office, and uh, that's when the girls came in on that Saturday, and I started my babysitting project on that Saturday <laughs> right after the ride. And then you fast forward a few years, you start working for the Black Panthers, and there was an incident I was reading about where uh, it was kind of a standoff, and you were actually called to the house to maybe peacefully kind of resolve the situation. I have to believe that the Algiers was in your mind while you were at that house. Oh, no question about it. Well, of course, I was representing the Black Panther Party at the time, and I was accompanied on my on that visit by my partner, Dennis Archer, at the <laughs> time. Dennis and I were practicing law together, and there was a uh, a reporter from the Michigan Chronicle, the, the African-American newspaper at the time. Um, uh, I've, I've forgotten her name. But at any rate, we were called to the house. And we were per permitted entry into the house. And I spoke to all the young. There were 16 of them in the house at the time. And uh, we spoke to them about surrendering because a police officer, a shot from that house killed a police officer. Last name was Smith. Hmm. Uh, so they, they, uh, they barricaded themselves inside of the house. The house was surrounded by the Detroit Police Department. And they were going to shoot it out with the police we talked them out of doing that, and 13, we were able to get 13 of the 16 out of the house and to safety. Three of uh, the youngsters, all male, decided they wanted to shoot it out with the police and, and, and die when the shootout. But I have to give the Detroit police a great deal of credit at that time. They tear gassed the house. They disabled the three remaining males. And they came out unharmed. Uh, so that was a trial. We had a trial with uh, all, all 16 of them, Ernest Goodman and myself. Uh, we were the lead lawyers in that trial. Uh, that happened in the, the trial, in fact, took place like 69, 70, as I recall. Uh, Ernest Goodman was a, another fine lawyer in this town. He's gone on. As I, as I recall, not that I was out on the streets in the early 70s, but that was at a time when Detroit police had Thompson submachine guns, where if you've ever seen any of the Untouchable movies, that's a pretty heavy-duty piece of weaponry, and it's my understanding that there might not have been much hesitation to empty one of those drums of ammo into a house like that so that's that's something else yeah. to get everybody out alive because I, yeah. I don't know if that was always I, the, the first choice of the uh first responders well, now, when i walked out of that house with dennis archer they said other nadine brown was the uh, name of the uh or oh, the reporter? Uh, reporter for the michigan chronicle at that time nadine brown i was certain that those three young men were going to get killed they had no chance 
of sort of fighting a fight, a shootout with the Detroit police with the house around. Plus, they had a small tank outside, too. Uh, but these youngsters were so vigilant and avid Black Panther members that they, they thought you know, life wasn't worth living. But they got them out without, without a harm, without any harm. By the way, those three who were the last ones that came out were the only ones convicted at the trial. of, uh, and, and they went to jail for a short period of time. And, but one of them got out. Uh, his name was Erone de Saucer. I understand he was able to get his conviction expunged. The young man went to medical school and became a doctor. Wow. Huh. Wow. Yeah. 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 I understand that these youngsters were not criminals. They were not robbers. Being These were black Panthers who did not believe in the segregated system that existed at that time in the United States and that black folks were being unfairly treated. And therefore, they had this philosophy, of course, we're not Martin Luther King peaceful demonstrators. We want to shoot it out with the police. So they were the, the aggressive, uh, violent part of the movement back in those days. You know? But yeah. very bright youngsters. Yeah. The, well, the, the one of, in, in looking at the Algiers Motel incident, one of the folks who was tried in the killings was a black security guard. Uh, if, if you've watched the movie, it was John Boyega. If, if you're a Star Wars fan, you, you probably yeah. remember oh, him yeah. from those. Oh, yeah. but, um, but his life did not turn out as well. Um, yeah. he, he was acquitted, but it, it seemed like he was ostracized by both communities and, and spent the rest of his, his life working as a security guard. I, I, I thought that was really unfortunate because my understanding is he was one of the folks who kept things from getting really out of hand and uh yeah. and, mm -hmm. and 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 it feels to me like he was collateral damage and all of that and and the officers kind of went on with their lives just not as police officers anymore but it didn't seem like like they suffered uh very gravely for the the havoc that they wrought yeah well listen there were not many winners during that bad period in detroit's history the 67 riots uh, it started the precipitous downfall of Detroit, leading to today, uh, where we have one-third, ML, one-third of the population we had when I graduated from high school in 1956. Population of Detroit was 1.8 million when I graduated. It is now, I guess, creeping up close to 700,000, but we've lost <laughs> roughly almost two-thirds of the population while maintaining the same space, you know? That's why this city in many areas looks so desolated, you know? I don't know if we'll ever come back to the old days, but uh, uh, we lived in a very vibrant city in the 50s and the early 60s. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's shocking to think that at one time we were the fifth largest city in the country, that we were bidding for the Olympics throughout the sixties yeah. that the Detroit actually was considered a front runner to get the Olympics. Um, You're right. It was that dynamic a city. Uh, Mayor Cavanaugh was considered this bright young JFK protege, sort of the, the new mayor, the enlightened white leader of a, of a, of a diverse city. Uh, his career kind of, kind of went sideways and uh, the city you know, I mean, it. Regardless of, regardless of what you think of it today, uh, 
as Elliot said, there are neighborhoods that were very vibrant then that no longer exist. And there's some neighborhoods that are struggling to recover still. And while we are having people move back to the city and move into our neighborhoods, which we're grateful. I have a lot of new neighbors and they're, they're wonderful, but we seem to see people moving up like vertically, like they want to live downtown in a high rise as opposed to having a, having a front yard, a backyard. And well, I guess we don't get the milkman anymore and nobody's delivering the damn newspaper anymore. I think Elliot and I may be the two last (laughs) Detroit news carriers around, but I didn't, I never got to Bermuda, by the way, I got, you weren't as good. No, well, I mean, how, how how could I be as good as Elliot? But uh, I think the best thing I ever got was a baseball bat. That was one of the prizes. But um, and then someone well, stole it from my car. This, I have to tell you this story about my Detroit news route. I had there were two white kids, two white boys, who went to Catholic Central. Bill and Bob Sharp. Uh, they joined me on my first Bermuda trip, and also on the second Bermuda trip. My second encounter with discrimination was when I got to Bermuda. I could not stay in the hotel where all the white carriers stayed. I had to stay in the black hotel in Bermuda. And I had met Bill and Bob Sharp on the plane. They wondered what what happened to me. So they came over. They found out where I was staying, came over to the hotel, stayed with us uh, for a while, and also uh, went to the beach with us later that that day, uh, we were permitted. I had there was another black guy with me, uh, was another carrier from the east side, and they permitted us to come to the the white hotel called the Bermudiana during the day for social activities. We just could not stay there at night. We had to go back to the black hotel. I stayed, and those Bill and Bob Sharp became very close friends of mine. They were so upset with how I was being treated, and the other guy was being treated. And I stayed in touch with both Bill and Bob Sharp for several years. They both became Catholic priests. Oh, wow. But I was never, and, later, and just in recent years, I've been trying to trace them down, and I have not been able to find hide nor hair of them. These are guys that just, just came and made a very great situation out of a dire thing in Bermuda when I was far away from home. And at the time, I was you know, 16, 17 years old. But these were great guys, great guys. And I, I tried to find them and haven't been able to do it. Were they in the uh, Detroit Archdiocese? Yes, they, they went to Catholic Central okay. in, in Detroit at the time. Yeah. Well, look, before it, they moved, Bill and Bob, they were brothers. And they graduated from high school the same year I did from uh, Catholic Central back in 1956. Hmm. Have not been able to run them down, you know? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll do a little looking on that because I think, I think we should be able to get a lead on them, see where, where they are these days. Um, what I, I want to go back to, to your work with these two women. Did, did you keep in touch with them after all the uh, legal stuff concluded? Because yeah. I saw that one of the women was a consultant on, on the movie. So she's That's still right. around. She was. I, I did not stay in touch with them. They kind of, after my incident with them and keeping them, they kind of went off the map and I didn't meet one of them until they did the movie. I met them down at the now Western Hotel uh, before the movie was released. Uh, but I had not seen her in huh, 50, what, 45, 50 years, you know, at the time. And, uh, but no, I did not stay in touch with them. Okay. And, and, and after, the, after the, uh, the legal proceedings concluded, 
were you in were you in, involved with any of the uh, any of the witnesses any of the defense i mean did this no, was just, just a, another no. case and you moved on to to many others or no no i i wasn't involved any further in the case i just continued my practice of of criminal law in the, in, in in the city and then up but i got involved as you know politically I, firstly when richard austin ran for mayor against Robin, Roman Gribbs in 1968. I was involved in uh, Richard Austin's campaign. He lost to Roman Gribbs. Roman Gribbs, Mayor Gribbs only served one term. That's when Coleman and John Nichols ran against one another and I became close with Coleman, as you know, and ended up being his first corporation counsel um, back in 1974. But I, I stayed involved with the practice, but I also stayed involved with the community because I was elected president of the NAACP back in 1972 before Coleman took office. So I was always had my foot in, in the law, but I also had my foot in the community too. Well, tell us a little bit what it was like to work with Mayor Young in those days, because he's, he's become such a legend that it's almost a myth, but you're someone who worked side by side with him and knew him before he became an icon. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Take this, these facts into consideration. I met Coleman when he was a state senator. Coleman Young had a, a high school education. He but had just what was, but was just brilliant, smart man. So smart that his peers in the Senate, all of these white senators from around the state of Michigan, elect him majority leader of the Senate. Uh, at the time that before he ran for mayor. So when he ran, he ran for mayor, it was a tough race between he and John Nichols. But of course, he, he won and he brought his intellect from a high school education to dealing with all of the difficult issues within the city. Uh, I found that great. I remember when he started the, uh, the practice, every city department would have a director and an assistant director. One had to be black, the other had to be white. So he diversified the city government and also made Philip Tanyan the police chief, a white police chief. People in the black community would say, you should appoint a black police chief. He did not. He wanted to make sure that the residents in the city of Detroit, the white residents particularly, who were leaving the city uh, in droves, uh, they wanted to at least indicate that the police department would be headed by a white police chief. So I knew Phil Tanyan, and I, and, uh, I stayed with, only stayed in the corporation counsel's office a little over a year. I went back to the practice of law, but Coleman uh, assigned several cases to me involving the integration of the police department and the fire department. We wanted to get more uh African-American police officers in above the patrolman rank and all the way up through uh, inspector and commander. So we, we dealt with those cases and were able to uh, further integrate the police department. And of course, as you know, ML, one of Coleman's first moves was to get rid of stress, that division of the Detroit Police Department that was terrorizing the black community and causing so much, so, so, so many problems. Uh, they had a lot of shootings and deaths attributed to that unit. And the Coleman got, got rid of it and uh, was able to sort of stabilize the crime situation in the city of Detroit. 
But Coleman was a very fair man, uh, uh, but strong, but a very strong leader. I mean, you, you, you know, he wasn't afraid to confront anybody. Uh, and most folks in the, respected him and some even fe feared him. If he fired somebody because they weren't doing their job in city government, he never completely fired them from the city. If they were not performing in one department, he would uh, relieve them of duties in that department and give them a job in another part of the city. He understood everybody <laughs> had to feed a family. So he was not that kind of person that would fire somebody and just put them out in the street. And not, a few people know that about Coleman. That he, <laughs> he really looked, at, looked after the folks that worked for him. Well, I remember hearing when Kwame Kilpatrick was getting rid of people that folks, maybe it was Bob Berg and some others who, who traced their roots back to the young administration said when Coleman, well, there are two things he said, once you're appointed, it's just a matter of time before you're disappointed. So if you got a, yeah. if you got a political <laughs> position, it yeah. was, it was temporary, but, uh, but the other thing was, yes, if, if he removed someone, he found a soft landing or he put them somewhere. He didn't, he didn't turn them yeah. out. And one of the things that I think some of, some folks would call him old heads. Some people would call him wise men yeah. said that Kilpatrick got wrong is he was a little more vindictive. If he got rid of you, you were gone. And so in that case, you ended up making an enemy. And in the case of Gary Brown, whose whistleblower lawsuit along with Harold Nelthrop really did. And, and Walt Harris really did bring about the end of the, the Kilpatrick administration was Gary Brown was willing to stay and move to a different position. And instead they just said, no, we, we got to get rid of you. And that was, if, if you trace back Kwame Kilpatrick's probably biggest fatal error, it was, it was getting rid of somebody instead of following the Coleman Young playbook and saying, you know what, we're, we're, we're going to move you from a place. We don't think you're performing to a place where you can, where you can run out the clock or you can, you know, qualify for your pension at a level that you think is fair. And, uh, and, and you worked with, with Mayor Kilpatrick at some point in there. What's a, what parallels and differences would you draw between Mayor Young and Mayor Kilpatrick? Well, I mean, I'm first going to start with the fact that Coleman Young had a high school education. Kwame Kilpatrick had a law degree and an undergrad degree, two degrees. Um, one of the things that Kwame didn't realize was the fact that he was not untouchable and he was not all-powerful. When he left the Michigan legislature and became mayor, he was making $70,000 a year. Kwame then becomes the mayor. He inherits a budget of over $3 billion, a mansion on the river. He doubles his salary, but still not satisfied. He ends up under the scrutiny of the FBI almost immediately. He and his, dad, he and his father. His mother was always a very honest person. I worked with his mother. When I was running the Ford Motor Company office years and years later, uh, she was a congressperson, and she was always straight as an arrow. That was not uh, known clearly by everyone regarding Kwame and Kwame's father. And he listened to his dad quite a bit. Uh, the most unfortunate situation was that uh, I heard 
from the FBI that, you know, for most of the things that Kwame was doing, they could obtain by wiretap. They never had to leave the FBI office. All they had to do was get the official uh, uh, warrant from the court to have their wire, uh, phones tapped. Uh, and, gee, a lot of the ongoing criminal enterprise was being discussed over the phone. Uh, it was just unfortunate that Kwame never realized that his activities that were illegal, and he should have known they were illegal because he's a lawyer, uh, uh, would come under scrutiny, but he thought that he was untouchable, and that was unfortunate. Now, I never worked for Kwame, but I did have a discussion with him uh, telling him that maybe he should hire the same personal lawyer that Coleman had for 20 years. My colleague here at the office of Meyer Morganroth. Morganroth uh, represented Kevorkian after a fire And Mike uh, also represented the former uh, executive vice president of General Motors uh, who, who built the wing, the, 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 the car with the wing, the doors. Uh, John DeLorean. DeLorean, yeah, he represented DeLorean. And I tried to get Kwame to hire uh, uh, Mike or Morgan Roth to sort of guide him through the maze of uh, being a mayor, because being a mayor, your approach was a lot of deals all the time. And one thing Coleman never did, someone tried to give him an envelope or say he'd be out at the fundraiser at some event and try to give him something. He never took it. He said, give it to my police officer over here. He never wanted <laughs> He was very scrupulous in, in, uh, in making sure that he handled it self-appropriately. And, of course, Mike Morganroth played a big role in terms of making sure he was protected. And as a result, as you know, after 20 years in office, Coleman Young was never indicted for anything. He was under suspicion for this and that, but all of it came to nothing, you know, because he had good counsel in Mike Morgan Raw. And Kwame didn't do that. He ends up now an unfortunate, unfortunate demise. I understand he wants to be a preacher at this point where he could have been one. He may have. I've had the opportunity, if he had played it straight, he had the smarts to be governor, you know. Uh, in my view, I thought he was very good on his feet. He was a very bright guy. Uh, but unfortunately, he, he, took a, he took a different path. I always thought that one of the one of the big differences between Kilpatrick and Young, and, and I think there were a lot of differences, but it, it, it seemed to me that Coleman Young had to fight and claw for everything he had, and he had to de- he had to play defense for a long time. Whereas, whereas Kwame Kilpatrick started from a pretty privileged place and didn't quite understand that uh, that there was a struggle. And and I often remember him saying, that "It's time for us to put you know the struggles of the past behind us." And I thought that's pretty easy for someone to say if they haven't been through them. Whereas Coleman Young. Boy, you want to talk about somebody who busted through barriers and overcame hurdles? It, it had to be had to be Coleman Young. Oh yeah, no question about it. He was a very unusual man, and I I was privileged to be able to spend some time with him over a number of number of years. When I I'll never forget when I because my plan, as you may know, and I was to succeed Coleman as mayor. I wanted to run for that office when he when he gave up, but my appointment as a Ford vice president sort of put that all to the side because in uh, January 1987, I got a call from the general counsel of Ford to be the first black vice president. And I, I couldn't turn that down because my dad 
worked at Ford for 42 years in the foundry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So here, uh, here, due to education and progress, here I, I, I become a vice president of the company where my daddy worked down in a dirty, hot, dingy foundry. Elliot. And as a result, my, my desire to become mayor was put aside, and my dear former partner and friend, Dennis Archer, took that helm. That Ford job is really interesting because you go to D.C., um, and I was reading a little bit about that, um, working with the separation from South Africa. And, and the only thing I can think of is you must have met a lot of pretty famous dignitaries and possibly presidents. Did you did you meet presidents doing that job? Oh, oh my goodness. Listen, when I went, I was almost like the CEO of Ford in Washington, D.C. I was the only company officer uh, in Washington, D.C., and I arrived there in 1987 when Ronald Reagan was the president. Mm -hmm. So being the fifth largest corporation in, in, uh, in the world at that time, um, I was in and out of the Reagan White House all the time dealing with domestic policy issues and also requesting certain favors for the auto industry, whether it was on, on, on a tax issue, on a fuel economy issue, on an environmental issue. Uh, was there. And then when he left office, I was in and out of the George H.W. Bush <laughs> White House all the time on the same issues and, uh, and also became very close to the Clinton White House. So during the 11 years that I ran the Ford office in D.C., uh, I was not only up on the Hill meeting with senators, but I was, of course, very good friends with my counterparts at Chrysler and GM. And on, th on many occasions, uh, Chrysler, Ford, GM, we would lobby an issue together. We would go and visit a, a representative's office or a senator's office and try to fight for certain legislation to be passed or for certain things to be stopped. When we walked into a senator's office, we walked in with the following power, gentlemen. We had, we had plants in 19 states. <laughs> the... the we were, the auto industry, were the largest consumer of steel, rubber, carpeting, glass, and semiconductors. We were the leading in five major industries. <laughs> so we, we walked into these senators all, and of course, by lobbying together, we were not uh, violating any antitrust uh, provisions uh, by lobbying as, as, as an industry. But, of course, we couldn't fix prices, <laughs> but uh, we could lobby an issue together. So that, those were great times. The most important thing to me, other than the domestic issues, was Ford had plants and offices all over the world. So I became good friends with the British ambassador, the Italian ambassador, the Australian ambassador, um, at least seven or eight major countries in the world. So uh, we had quite a time. Wow. Uh, that experience in Washington D.C. Well, Elliot, I I uh, I love the idea of Mayor Hall. I think that would have been a very very exciting uh, era for Detroit. But of course, your friend and colleague Dennis Archer did a fantastic job as mayor. Inherited a city that was facing some serious challenges. Got us back on our feet. A lot of people don't understand that that he also dealt with an economic downturn and and got the city squared away. Uh, I often think that if, if Mayor Kilpatrick had turned to Mayor Archer for his good counsel, we would have avoided our bankruptcy because I think when Mayor Archer took office, as Mayor Young faced at some point, 
the prospect of not being able to have revenues meet expenses. They, they took some strong medicine and, and got the city back on good financial footing. But I'm, I'm very sorry to hear you retiring, but I know you're not going away because even when you were working for Ford, you were someone that people who made decisions in Detroit turned to to make sure they were making good decisions for Detroit. So we really appreciate you making the time with uh, for us this morning. And uh, when you do retire, if you're thinking you have some time to uh, look into a memoir, uh, maybe we should reconnect because I would love <laughs> to hear some of those stories and share them with people. Oh boy! Well, that's 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 my plan, ML. I tend to focus on a memoir when I retire, uh, layout because I think I have a few stories to tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you have a few volumes of stories to tell. <laughs> yeah. So we appreciate you sharing some of them with us today. But when you sit down, if you're looking for a collaborator, let me know. I would I would love to help you in any way I can. Well, thank you so much, ML. I've enjoyed this. It's conjured up some memories that I thought were lost in the recesses of my mind, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's been good. Uh, that, that mind is like a steel trap. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's more stories coming and, and we really appreciate it. Elliot Hall, uh, counselor to, uh, I won't say Kings, but I'll say to mayors, to CEOs, to ambassadors, uh, and, uh, and a man who knows his way around the white house as well as the Capitol. We really appreciate you taking some time this morning with us on the soul of Detroit. Thank you so much, ML. Appreciate it. And Mark, too. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hall. All right. Pretty amazing stuff. A man who has not just been an eyewitness to history, but played a role in some pretty spectacular, spectacular moments in Detroit history, both heartbreaking and inspiring. And, uh, man, I love I love his candor on, uh, on Kwame Kilpatrick. Yeah, Th- yeah. There aren't a lot of people who had the mayor's ear who are willing to speak so uh, so forthrightly. In a comparison between um, their upbringings, between him and Coleman. Oh, yeah. And, and I've, I've said this difference. many times that, that Kwame Kilpatrick reminded me a lot of some of the folks I grew up with in Gross Point, whose parents were very successful, very connected. Everything seemed like it was teed up for them. And the difference is Kilpatrick, you know, kind of pretended that he, he came from nothing, which... Uh, which wasn't the truth. Now, Dennis Archer, on the other hand, who a lot of people thought of as the bougie mayor, did come from nothing. He was the son of a one-armed handyman in Cassopolis, Michigan, and from the the poor side of Cassopolis, which you may not have heard of in the uh, same uh, same breath as Beverly Hills. You know, it was not a privileged community. So, you know, just just interesting. And and you know, you don't really think that much about Dennis Archer. As a young lawyer, but there he was with Elliot Hall trying to get the Black Panthers to give up peacefully. I mean, yeah. I, I really would love to sit down with Elliot and just just have a blank notebook and say, let's fill this because you'd be throwing out amazing stories just to have an, enough, uh, you know, just so that the book doesn't weigh 1,000 pounds. Well, and then we have to talk about another mayor coming up too when we dive into your column. And I think Sean might be with us. Sean, grunt or make a noise if you're there. I'm here. <laughs> There's that sunshine. Uh, but first, I need to tell everybody about Hall Financial and the Buy Smart program. Housing inventory is on the rise, and you can get ahead of the competition before the busy spring and summer home buying season, before that really arrives and kicks in high gear. It's easier than ever right now to get into your new home with Hall Financial's exclusive Buy Smart program, giving you up to $2,500 towards your down payment. Get pre-approved the same day. 
with uh, most credible pre-approval in the industry. That's Hall Financial's five-star certified pre-approval. They can even connect you with the top realtor. They have a huge network of realtors. So whether you're looking to purchase a new home or refinance your current home, call Hall Financial first, 866-CALL-HALL, or chat with them online at callhallfirst.com. And with all that money that you're going to save with them, make it work for you. Give Luke Nowacki a call. He's got a whole team at Pinnacle Wealth Strategies. They can help plan for all your future financial goals um, and even the goals you have today. Give Luke a call, 248-663-4748. He's going to give you a complimentary consultation. you got to see where your money's at. you got to see where it's going. And even if you want to ask him about uh, all these bank failures and what you're supposed to do with your money right now, if you're freaking out about that, give Luke and Pinnacle Wealth Strategies a call, 248-663-4748. Because when you call Luke, he'll make it all about you, sweetheart. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Inc. Member FINRAS.TC. Royal Alliance Associates Inc. is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Royal Alliance Associates Inc. Oh man, the geeks have inherited the earth. Did I do that? What a dork. Does him wanting to play with us again mean that he's turning into a geek? Or we're turning into cool guys? So I'm going to keep this short because we've had these folks as our Geek of the Week before. But Megan and Harry, <laughs> who don't want to be part of the royal family, just announced that they're going to refer to their kids as prince and princess. Hmm. So if you want out, get out. Amen. If you don't, don't. But quit trying to cash in from pulling back at the same time. You're diving in. So Princess well, and Megan. And if they're so horrible, why do you want your kids to be part of that, right? Well, I mean, it, wait, if you want to be out of the royal family, how can your kids be a prince and a princess? You exactly. Know, right? Yeah. I mean, you know. And if I didn't like my family or my in-laws, I don't know if I'd want my kids to be part of that structure that they're, I mean, the royals are a little different. You know what I mean? It's just silly. Right, Sean? Absolutely right. Uh, did I hear about a, maybe it was a South Park episode? It was yes. kind of mocking the, the the couple, yeah, for saying they didn't want to be, they didn't want anybody, they'd be out and about, and they didn't want anybody to look at them, yeah. And then when people stop looking at them, they're like, "Why aren't you looking at us?" Exactly, because that's how they roll. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, they Great are show. they are the uh, they are the royal equivalent of uh, of a low cut blouse. Hey, <laughs> you ever heard of a thing called privacy? So they're the. Geeks. Oh, yeah. So Megan and Harry, uh, prince and princess, I guess. I don't know. I can't remember. But this much I do know. You are our Geeks of the Week. Welcome to Room 7609, where we try and take new wave gems and polish them up. Or maybe we are mining them from that forgotten vein of great music that just never really saw someone hit it with their little spotlight on their helmet and said, oh my goodness, I'm going to extract this and bring it to the whole world. It's the Koinor diamond of uh, new wave music, and I'm going to introduce it to the world. Well, 
We appreciate your suggestions. You can always send them to mlsoulofdetroit at gmail.com. That's exactly what Julie did earlier this month, saying that Steve Mackey, the bass player for Pulp, died on March 2nd at 56. So she nominated Babies for an upcoming show. Here's that show. Here's that song. It's Pulp with Babies. Years ago When you lived on Standard Road Listen to your sister When she came home from school Cause she was two years older And she had boys in her room At least outside I heard her Alright That was alright for a while But soon I wanted more I wanted to see as well as here And so I I hid inside her wardrobe And she came home round four And she was with some kid called David And from the garage of the road I listened outside, I heard her saw you next day I really couldn't tell Cause you might go and tell your mother And so you went with me Oh yeah, me was coming on And I thought I heard you laughing Where is mom and dad were gone I listened outside, I heard you
Yeah, 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 yeah. In yeah, fact. yeah. Um, so that's that's pulp. Uh, you know, not not new wave at all. That's more Brit pop, right? Well, yeah. I mean, early nineties Brit pop. They formed during the new wave era, but they really didn't make many waves until they got into kind of the the Brit pop. I, I don't know if I would exactly consider that shoecasing. I know we kind of had a lot of a lot of interest in shoegazing back in January, more than I I would have expected. But yeah, this is you know he 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 doesn't exactly sound like uh, James or but I I kind of have that sort of a little more poppy than the Stone Roses, but mm-hmm. definitely that Madchester feel where it's uh, you know kind of sing songy and um, you know a little some weird little. Some weird little, I don't know what a keyboard or synthesizer, what that was at the beginning of the song, but it's it's got that jaunty little feel to it. I, I, I like it, but I like Britpop, so. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, it's it's the best thing the British have imported since. Um, Punk? Um, no, I was going to say fish and chips, but I don't really like, I really don't like fish. Harry. But. What? Who? Harry? H- Harry. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah, but. I, they they exported Harry, but the the problem is now Nobody we got wants him. It. Yeah, yeah if, <laughs> Nobody if, wants him. If they'd sent him to Australia, like the British sent all the Irish and Scottish troublemakers, that would have been great. But uh, but now we're stuck with uh, his royal APW. Exactly. Solid. I choice. couldn't hear the song, by the way. What? Why not? What's wrong? Uh, I'll, Open well, your ears. All I could hear. All I could hear was yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounded like the lead singer from the National a little bit. <sighs> Oh, could be. I um, I just wondered. And, and Sean is dialing in from a uh, undisclosed location, but uh, not the safe house where Elliot Hall, uh, who was our guest today, hid the uh, witnesses to the Algiers Motel massacre. But I was wondering if, in keeping with tradition, Sean, did you did you find a, a safe place to relieve yourself during Room Seven Six Zero Nine? Well, I uh, I did before I jumped on. How about that? Uh, Does that count? I suppose it's just not the same. It's not the same than having you in here. Yeah, and yeah. and running up the stairs and run running? is a relative. Rel- <laughs> runs a relative term, of course. Say, yeah, yeah. I'd say moving at at faster than a normal rate <laughs> in a northerly <laughs> direction. Well, Sean, it's that's uh, relative too. We, we were talking about the Windsor Curse earlier, where you declare that a player or a team is rounding into shape and is poised for uh, for great success, and then they immediately fall off a cliff. Um, I'm wondering if you feel that you owe Juwan Howard or Tom Izzo any sort of apologies or, or some sort of, yeah. Getting my hopes up. Yeah. No, because I, uh, I the, the point of that column, if it's the column you're referring to, was that sometimes it's okay if you just get a little bit better during the season. I said nothing about a tournament run. I said their odds of making the tournament were slim and um, that they'd just been playing better down the stretch. And then they obviously face planted against Rutgers in the second half, especially, but I didn't write anything about them getting on a run. I was just trying to put in context saying he he didn't need to be on the hot seat. That that was ridiculous. Yeah, no, no, no. I just meant what you told me personally, where you're like, yeah, they could be Rutgers and they match up against Purdue. I'm like, no. Yeah, they, uh, I feel like and it's funny because I talked to Phil Martelli off to the side a little bit after the game, mm-hmm. the assistant coach uh, to Jawan Howard, and and he said that he felt like the last few weeks of game after game after game, which was essentially a, a tournament game, right? Yeah, because they were playing to try to get in, it, it just kind of caught up to him, and it, they were tight. 
and the, the the stage they just didn't handle it well. You know, their youth caught up to them, and and they and they look like it. They, I know some fans were upset, and, and let me just make this point real quickly. There are plenty of times, and I, I can't speak as much to other sports, but there are plenty of times in basketball, in particular. Maybe Mike can speak a little bit more to hockey, but where tightness and anxiety reads as lack of energy and focus. Yeah. And, and a lot of fans were, were complaining, you know, they, they weren't ready to play. They, they looked disinterested, discombobulated, disconnected, all that. And that may be true in terms of how they look, but that's not true in terms of what's inside them and why they're performing the way they are. They were just kind of overwhelmed by the moment a little bit. And, um, and they turned and the ball that, over. And it freezes you, and then that slows you down. And you you guys know how this works in any other facet of life. If you're if you're anxious about something, it's hard to it's hard to settle in and do whatever the task is at the normal sort of rate of speed. And um, and I feel like that's what happens in basketball sometimes, and probably other sports too. But I, I don't know if you ever feel that in hockey, Mike. Um, you know, you, you hear about people clutching their stick a little too tight and things like that. But I, I think one of the things in hockey is if, if you get caught flat footed, you're going to get run over. Somebody's going to hit you. Yeah. There's a lot of movement in basketball too, but it's not the same fluid. I mean, you stop, start a lot more in basketball and there's, there's a lot more sets, you know, in hockey, you're not looking out over there for the coach to necessarily call up a set, maybe a power play or something, but so, so you're not thinking as much. It's much more reaction in a in a quicker time in the ice. And basketball is a fast sport, obviously, but you still have to think about certain fundamentals. And if you're not thinking clearly, you look like you're moving in molasses. I'm just going to go with the Sean Windsor curse. I think that's a better way to explain it. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I think. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And as far as state, they uh, we'll see. I mean, they've they've got a bracket that's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have talked about that or not, no. but. Um, but they've got a they they've got a bracket where I mean UCA USC is the kind of team that I hate to say this because this means the opposite will happen but it's the kind of team that Izzo has had success with in the past. They're athletic. They got they got some skill uh, and some talent. They're not very organized offensively because they've got certain kind of skill and talent. They just run a lot of high ball screens. I don't want to geek out here too much, but um, they're good defensively. But it's it's the kind of team that uh, that he can take advantage of when he doesn't have. His most talented team. I don't know if they will, but if they somehow get by USC, you know, I think Marquette's really good as the two seed, and you would assume they'd be there. But uh, I don't. I'm not sure they're Arizona. I'm going to pull this know? audio, and uh, if all that comes true, we'll never hear it again. But um, if you're way off in the mark, we'll replay it. Yeah. So if no, you're... for sure. I don't think they'll beat Marquette. So you can you can definitely put that on the table. Okay. Good. Yeah, Marking that as well. If you're filling out your bracket, uh, go with USC. Damn it. <laughs> Yeah, just no, I, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tough game for him. But I'm just saying, in his past, when he's had runs that have come when you don't expect them, it usually starts with beating a, a team like USC. Hmm. All right, it, it, sounds it, good. Or it would have if you hadn't said that, but it's, it's okay. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about that, Mike. But uh, <laughs> are you planning on going to Columbus, Michael? No, I will be teaching uh, at noon when the Spartans take the field. So I'm I'm wondering if I'll be the only one in the classroom. And then uh, from East Lansing, I will be jumping in the Riv and headed straight to Detroit, where I will be at the Cadu Cafe from at least three o'clock till four thirty, doing kind of a live version of the Soul of Detroit with the folks there, and then hanging out for some beers and uh, you know other kind of East Side hijinks that one might have uh, on St. Patrick's Day. We're at a Belgian bar 
in a neighborhood named for the English. What, what, so what could possibly jumping, go wrong? <laughs> so you're not jumping in the Riv as in the Red Cedar River, you know, sort of taking your clothes off and uh, getting a little cool bath. You're talking about your car, which you have nicknamed, which is interesting. Um, well, I, I don't know that it's a nickname. It is a Riviera, so it's more of a derivative. But uh, I'm not ruling out uh, a polar dip in the Red Cedar River, but I will be I will be cruising down 96 in the 1985 Buick Riviera, which uh, which actually does have a nickname, Duke Riviera. So I'll be right. Do you keep a, Do you keep a case of oil in the trunk? I'll be rolling in the Duke. Oh no, no! I have a fantastic mechanic. There's no need for that sort of thing. This this car purrs, man. Dave has got this thing just just rolling. So uh, so no, everything will be fine. Uh, and I will be. Uh, I also will not be stopping at the Riv in East Lansing, which was one of my favorite haunts when I was an undergrad. So uh, no, I'll be uh, I'll be taking the Buick to the East Side and having a grand old time at the Cadu Cafe. So please come out and join me and say hey, and uh, we'll raise a glass. Uh, you buy the first one, and then I'll duck out before it's my turn. It's the Irish goodbye uh, round style. Will you be there, Sean, in Columbus? I will be. I will be. Okay. Are you, doing, sure, are you certain be. of that? You seem to a little yeah. hesitant. Performing some Santeria to curse my team. No, 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 no. I had a, um, <laughs> I had something I was trying to. I know. Uh, did, 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 can I, did, can you take uh, talk amongst yourselves for about sure. 30 seconds, please? Sure. Okay. Well, we'll, okay. well, let's jump into the next thing. Cause we've teased it twice. Oh yeah. But. No. And I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt Sean's day with our show. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to be a problem. It's okay. You st- I, I, uh, normally I would pounce on Windsor for doing this, but knowing that there's a situation in the fact that he's even with us at all is pretty impressive. Yeah, and since he urinated into an ashtray, we should probably cut him some slack. <laughs> so let me thank our, our our lone donor this week. Rebecca sent us a, a very, very kind donation with a note that says, have a St. Patrick's Day cocktail on me. And it's enough for each of us to have a cocktail. So Ooh, nice. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we did hear from some folks. Now, of course, you can donate to us by going to... Uh, mlsoulofdetroit.com and hitting the donate button on the upper right hand corner of our of our page. You can also support the show by letting your our sponsors know that you know about them because of the show. And you can uh, support the show by subscribing to our YouTube channel. It's Soul of Detroit. If you subscribe, like the show, hit the bell. You can get alerts whenever we go live and that really does help us. We're closing in on 400 subscribers. Uh, Drew just recently discovered YouTube and came downstairs <laughs> and said, Hey, yeah, man, we were at like 600. Now we're at like 4,000. I said, Oh, that's your feelings were hurt. That's, that's, I'm very happy for you. Um, but we did actually, we did have another, uh, donation and that's why Drew came down here because Marnie kindly delivered a, uh, a basket of treats, including an awesome Altus beer sign. It looks like there's some chocolate I won't be able to touch until after Lent and some other some other cool stuff in there. So thank you very much. There's all kinds of ways to support the show, and we appreciate all of them. And your feedback is a great way to let us know that you care. So you don't want to talk about the column, okay. Well, I thought we were going to talk about <laughs> feedback and then get to the column before mess- we— I'm just messing with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, the feedback. And we got feedback today that actually made me laugh. Literally out loud and for a long time, and it's uh, I think this is a review 
on the iTunes page, correct? Yes. Yeah, somebody gave us a five-star review. We, we love it when you rate us on whatever platform you're listening to. They do accumulate, and we have 600 ratings now with an average of 4.7. So rate us, even if you hate us, you know, give us five stars and then crap all over us. You know, we'll, we'll consider that a good day's work. So I hope Sean's listening because this one is mainly directed at him, and it's from uh, C. Bellaro. And what they say is, uh, Sean is finally, finally starting to act like he's not such, that it's not such a chore to be here and be on the show. <laughs> so Sean is finally realizing that, hey, this show's not so bad and the, the one that I'm on, it's not so bad. It's not a chore. Yeah, I, I, he, he warmed up after 160, Until today. 195 episodes. And of course, he's being lauded for his his participation, his presence, and his energy at a time when he's not here, he's silent, <laughs> and seems a little bit sonambulant. Of all days, too. One day where he seems disinterested. But that's okay. That's our Sean. I even gave him a big word to pick on. Yeah. <sighs> so this column... Oh, yeah. We're building up to the I, crescendo. I, I don't know if Sean's coming back, is my point. Yeah, I think uh, the, the thing is when you dial into a podcast from a white van next to a park, sometimes people will tap on the window and they'll pull you out of it and they'll begin to hit you about the head and shoulders with sticks. I was very intrigued regarding uh, feedback. Yeah, Sean just texted me, yes, yeah, we can't hear you. I don't know why we can't hear you, but we can't hear you. I love it when uh, there's personal text. Um, I was surprised at the feedback you got on your column, which was about the state of the city and Mike Duggan's speech. And most of it, uh, reading the feedback, I think they might have missed the main point of the column because the people in the comment section seem to be defending the billionaires for you know getting tax uh, dollars, public dollars. Right, and and I will tell Wasn't you, really, your point. No, but it, it's funny. I, I was at a neighborhood association meeting earlier this month, and the very first Chick Fil A is coming to Cornerstone Village, which is the neighborhood right next to my neighborhood. It's going to be the first Chick-fil-A in Detroit. It's going to be the first drive through only Chick-fil-A in Michigan. And it's going to create 50 jobs. It's going to take an abandoned piece of land, or at least an underdeveloped piece of land, a former, a former car lot, and turn it into a dynamic uh, business in the neighborhood. And I was thinking to myself, those guys received zero subsidy. Mm -hmm. They're just building it and it's going to make a difference. And I started thinking, you know, with these big billionaire projects, they, they always seem to want something from us. And now they've got this plan where, which I get, I mean, who wouldn't ask for everything you, you could get. Sure. But I mean, if you're building a Chick-fil-A on the East side, you know, that's kind of like turning straw into gold. If you can make businesses work in some of these remote neighborhoods, mm -hmm. how the hell can you not make them work downtown? Then I started thinking- A little smaller scale, but yeah. Yeah. but but And they own the land. What are they going to do with that land if we say, no, we're not going to give you all this money? I mean, th there's there's a lot of reasons why this project could go forward on its own. But to your point, Mark, I listened to the mayor's state of the city, which again was a bravura performance. The guy works without notes. He's got graphics. It's amazing how he does it. It's almost like he was a debate champion. Uh, yes, I think I may have read that in the free press. <laughs> but the thing is, he's defending the billionaires. He's promoting this project. And what he didn't say that I think would actually help the project 
move forward more than anything else is my fellow Detroiters, I will remain vigilant. I will bird dog these people. I will make sure that they fulfill their promises to us in return for $800 million in tax incentives. Now, now listen to that do, number. Do what you're going to say. Do, yeah, do what you say you're going to do. It's a $1.5 billion project. Half of that money is going to come from taxpayers. Yep. And if Duggan just said, you know me, I'm the data guy. People who work for me know that I am up their ass all the time and I make no apologies for it. If he had just said, I'll be just as tough on the billionaires as I am on the people who work for me and for the city of Detroit and the people who litter and the people who paint graffiti and the people who don't put their trash barrels in after trash pickup day. I think, I think people would say, well, I'm all in then because this is the one guy who holds everybody accountable. And instead he sounded a lot like he was on the PR team. What one other interesting thing in your column is you mentioned how the day after the state of the city he sends out an email for fundraising. Um, how how many how long has he been a mayor? Mayor he's of been the mayor since 2013, so this is his tenth year there's as no, mayor. There's no term limits, correct? He can be mayor for as long as the people will have him. Do you think he's going to run for mayor again, or? So there's something a, else. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a there's couple a lot of rumors floating around. Yeah. There's a couple of scenarios. And one that seems to be very popular is that the mayor is going to run for governor. And so, um, so, uh, so yeah, he'll finish this term focus for a year before the gubernatorial election on winning the democratic nomination. And then, you know, hopefully be elected in November. That's his hope. Um, but there's another school of thought that somebody mentioned to me is that, well, no, once you're no longer mayor, you don't have the clout, you don't have the power, you don't have the influence. So maybe he'll run for a fourth term as mayor and then run for governor while he's serving as mayor. <laughs> you know, that, you know, I, I can see some logic to that. But if I were to make a bet, and I'm not a betting man, I would say Duggan finishes this term and runs for governor. And the other thing is you see all kinds of politicians. Uh, Craig Mauger, when he was with the Michigan Campaign Finance Network and when I was with Fox 2, we worked together on a story about retiring state senators who were raising tons of money, even though they were not going to run for office ever again. Now, in their case, they tended to spend some of that money on shit that they liked that was probably inappropriate. But every politician raises too. money. Because they want to have that power, they want to have that influence, and they want to have that option to, well, if I change my mind, you know, I'll have all that money in the bank. Yeah. Wow. What was that, Sean? You're back. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. I was just saying, yeah, it's another great story by Mike. Sorry, I, I had something come up, and uh, I'm probably going to have to leave you guys here, but it's been a great show. And um sounded like you had a great guest, and I really appreciate you making a little time for me. Uh, we, we're always happy to accommodate you, Sean. Um, Did you hear the feedback, Sean, at least? No, what was the feedback? Sean is finally starting to act like it's not such a chore to be there. That was the feedback. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, was that the feedback? Yeah. Yeah. And now well, Sean has to I, go. Uh, was it a chore today to be here? Um, no, it was, uh, no, it was, I was happy to, happy to try to do it. It's a little tricky, but. I know. Uh, I know. Yeah, and I I had to uh, shit going blow on. off blow off an institution that was rather important that, that 
I'm wondering if that's what muted me, but who knows? Maybe Ooh. Mike just wanted to mute me. I wouldn't blame him. Oh, no, no. I, I want cryptic. I want more Windsor. I'm like the audience. I can't get enough, Sean. I know, and, me neither. And people feel deprived when we don't have a fully engaged uh, Windsorian element. Um, and and, and well, contrary well, to I, the, evi- the body what, of evidence, I, Sean does I go to great what. pains to join us. I tell you what, give me about 60 seconds and I'll be back with you. Well, we're going to wrap by then. Yes. No, you're not. <laughs> Try me. <laughs> he just muted again. Oh, that Let's wrap before he comes back. Yeah, no, that's that's one of his uh, that's one of his old dating lines. To give me sixty <laughs> seconds, and I'll make it and worth. The room will while. come back to me. Yeah, but um, but oh, no. Sean. So so one thing with the raising money, and uh, we were talking about Dennis Archer earlier in the show. Dennis Archer was expected to seek a third term and shocked everybody, including his deputy mayor, when he decided not to seek a third term. But he was raising money right up until the time he announced that he would not seek another term and had a massive, massive fundraiser, raised, I think, like $2 million. And when he left office, he took all that money and created the Dennis Archer Foundation, which provides scholarships for kids to go to Wayne State University and maybe to Western. I'm not sure about that, but he's a Western alum. Go Broncos. So um, so mayors have raised money right up until the end. And even if they didn't go into politics again, they've they've used it for for worthwhile endeavors. Or in the case of of Duggan, if he keeps that account going, he could use it to support other candidates or initiatives or do whatever he wants. So we love money. Yeah, and I, the, I do uh, the whole show has been this riveting. That's, I guess that's a good question. Oh my God, that was way shorter than 60 seconds. Was it? That's the other thing about his dating. (laughs) You were hoping, you were hoping to get out before then. No, someone said that. I don't know who. Yeah, I was. Oh, I thought, I thought it sounded like uh, you, but that's okay. Phil Martelli told us to that when we saw him at uh, at the the unemployment office. Name name dropping of an assistant coach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no, that's a, that's the uh, guy at the sandwich shop. Is he, does he. Is there basketball, Martelli? Uh, I believe there is. Oh, okay. He used to be a pretty good head coach, and now he's kind of a Sean. Just talked to him. Yeah, a Buddha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's no. where you, that's where you get some good information. Mike will tell you that you don't always go to the the top dog. You go to the people that kind of work around them and support them. Absolutely. In fact, I think he had some of his 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 best success as a head coach during a six game stretch in Ann Arbor, wasn't it? He did. He did. He, got, he had a pretty good run at St. Joe too, if I'm not mistaken. But, but he may in have any case. He may have the highest winning percentage of Michigan head coaches ever, right? Wasn't he like five and one or four uh, and two? I, I mean, he was. I I do have a question. Listening to that chuckling and that uh, that smirk that I can hear in your your face, do you take more pleasure out of Michigan struggling in basketball and football than than Michigan State oh, winning? You know, I mean, how does that? You know, how does answer. that work? You know that answer. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I want my guys to win. I don't think that's true. No, 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 no. Not now. Here's there's this. This is a distinction. When we win and they lose, there are a few better days than that for me. But if we lose and they lose, I'm not happy. If we lose and they win, I am miserable. So no, no. If my guys first. If they if you lose and they lose, then it takes the sting away a little bit, right? I mean, it it mutes it a bit, softens it. A little lidocaine, a little uh, neosporin, so to speak. I would say it's more of a relief. But if Michigan State beat Michigan for the national championship every year, I'd be very happy for the success we both enjoyed up until the penultimate moment. Hmm. 
I don't which know. is another I, sign I, from I, Sean's. I, I really don't know if I believe that. Oh, are, are you kidding? Michigan State beating Michigan for the national championship in any sport, including tiddlywinks. That's that's it. Doesn't get much better. Than I don't that. know if I where would you where would you go from that? You, you know where would you go? What would you do? Would you just stop the podcast? Right? You'd sell your Riviera. <laughs> well, there would be no point to anything. I mean, that would be it, right? I would dive naked covered in in hot sauce through the seven rings of hell to watch that game no problem never it'll never happen don't worry no nobody wants to see me naked covered in hot sauce exactly yeah. dude they were, what, what was the year where they were sort of on a collision course and they both got to the elite eight 2014 maybe they both got to the elite eight yeah and uh, all i know is that the media in detroit but has to cover both of them uh, as partially impartially as they can, uh, was kind of feeling, oh my God, this, if this, what's going to happen if this happens, right? It's yeah. everything's going to stop. Time's going to stop. Oh, yeah. They but- weren't that, they weren't that far away. They both lost tough, close games. I think Michigan to, to Kentucky at a buzzer beater and state to Connecticut after leading by 12 in the second half. Oh, don't tell me second. about that. And then Kevin Ali got, got drummed out of Connecticut the next year for all kinds. Mm-hmm. Just like Michigan got screwed. They got beat by Louisville, and then they found out what a scumbag Patino was. I mean, now nobody should have been shocked by that. But both of those teams kind of got got, uh, got got knocked out by by what I'm going to call um, unrighteous uh, opponents who did the wrong thing and advanced. Uh, that, 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 uh, that left a bad taste in my mouth. And I've said repeatedly on this show – the John Beeline is my favorite non-Spartan coach in all of college sports, and and Red Baron, Baronson would be right right up there too. Hmm. It's always about the righteousness with you. By the way, can I just point this out? To, 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 uh, to so both, glad Sean's to back. Both of you. No, no, no. And I just want to point this out to both of you. That this is not how how little this is a chore. I am I am uh, driving, taking part of this podcast. I got family in the car that's being. Very quiet, so so I can at least sound like a little bit of a professional. So this is how seriously I take this responsibility in my life. Yeah, and if and if they make a sound, Papa will, you know, <laughs> discipline them. Oh yeah, right. That 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 would probably go over well, considering it's not my kids. <laughs> is uh. But if that works for you, is, is Belvin? You know, that, is Belvin there? I'm not, I'm, not here, I'm you, not here to judge. Can you put Belvin on? Are, are you going like 900 miles an hour down the road in a kimono? In a in a Jaguar? Yeah. No. no. Okay. Well. No convertible, candy apple red. <sighs> well, it's good to hear from you, even for a short amount of time, Sean. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. And are we are we wrapping this up? Yes. I think so. We look forward to joining you in person again uh, next week, Sean, and we hope you'll all join us either online, on YouTube, on Facebook, or just by downloading the episode at your favorite uh, podcast portal, platform, whatever the hell we call them. And until next week, it's time for Cyrus to take us Can you dig that? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Listening to Tommy Hanley and Itmar with Horace Percival, Sidney Keith, Fred Yule, Dorothy Summers, Dino Galvani, Bill Stevens, Gene Capra, and Paula Green. BBC Variety Orchestra conducted by Charles Shadwell. Script and lyrics by Ted Kavner. 
Produced by Bork Verlauer.